0: Support for the Sponsor Pod and the following message come from Sponsor CX. If you're looking for an innovative, intuitive, and simple way to manage your sponsorships, look no further than this sponsorship management software. Sign up for a demo today and find out how easy it is to manage your sponsors. Learn more at www.sponsorcx.com.
1: Hey guys, it's Jason. Welcome to episode number nine of the Sponsor Pod featuring Ken Unger, president and founder of Charge. Ken helps brands and properties unlock the power of sponsorships. Prior to starting his agency, he worked as a marketer, league representative, event promoter, and business leader at the highest levels of professional sports. It was a pleasure to have him on the podcast. There's lots of insights to learn from Ken. Enjoy the show.
0: And so that CEO, whose name is Tony George, he remembered me from when I practiced law. And when he looked at my resume, he said, oh, you were deputy chief of staff to the governor. I have a job called chief of staff. It sounds like you're perfect for this job. (laughs) And he said, what do you know about auto racing? And I said, absolutely nothing. Yeah, then that's when you're (laughs) like, no. I'd been to three races in my entire life prior to that. And he said, that's fine. He said, I need someone to help me run my business. I'll teach you the racing part. So it was luck. It was right place, right time. Happened to know the person who was hiring. But that was my, the beginning of my sports you know, business career. And I couldn't have planned it in a thousand years to turn out the way it did. <laughs>
1: This is The Sponsor Pod, a show about sponsorship leaders and their experiences, stories, and how they see the ever-changing world of sponsorships. I'm Jason Smith, and on the show today, we're going to hear from Ken Unger, president and founder of Charge. I connected with Ken to hear about his sponsorship journey.
0: I was born in New York City, so I was born in Brooklyn and grew up in Brooklyn and Queens. And then uh, when I was in high school, my dad uh, had a job opportunity. He couldn't pass up, so we moved to Indianapolis. And uh, so I've lived in Indianapolis off and on for quite a while.
1: That's great. Any, any brothers and sisters growing up?
0: Yeah. Uh, besides mom and dad, I have a younger brother. He's about uh, three years younger than me. He uh, lives in the area as well. So we get to see each other's families growing up, which is pretty fun.
1: Did you uh, did you play any sports or anything growing up? Were there any hobbies or interests that you had?
0: Yeah, it was kind of it's kind of funny. I I've worked in sports now for the last you know twenty five years or so, but uh, growing up, I played no sports <laughs> because <laughs> my my mother funny funny story. My mother was very risk averse, so she would not let my brother or I play sports for fear that uh, we'd get hurt. <laughs> she <laughs> so, wanted you
1: to live in a bubble.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. So we were bubble kids, and so I went to college and kind of in rebellion. The first thing I did in college was I joined the uh, university club, <laughs> 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 where the chances of getting hurt uh, were pretty high. So, uh, but I, I I didn't really um, play sports. I w- I did the kind of slightly nerdy but fun stuff. I was on the debate team. And-
1: yeah, that's 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 awesome. Well. Being on the debate yeah, team, I mean, we're those t- you. You, uh, you went and got a degree from Indiana University in political science and business administration, but then you went to Columbia for your law degree. So, being on the debate team was that something that kind of spurred you into that, or what? Sure,
0: what, sure. Kind of on the debate team, direction? I learned I learned how to argue on the debate team, but then. In law school, I did it professionally. <laughs> okay,
1: there you go. <laughs> you got paid to do it.
0: I yeah, paid to do it, but uh, you know it was kind of it, it was kind of fun. I uh, growing up, I we had a very very simple lifestyle. My uh, my parents were children of the Great Depression, so we lived a very you know frugal, simple lifestyle, and um, a big you know a big night during the week was to go out for a cheeseburger at the Sizzler. Um, and uh, if if we did take vacations, um, we we took them very close to where we lived in New York. If we couldn't do it within a day or two drive, um, we didn't really do vacations. So uh, kind of funny, didn't travel growing up. And so um, pretty much fr- through a career in sports and uh, our family loves to travel. We I, I've made up for it uh, big time <laughs> since growing up. But, you know, it's kind of interesting what I learned from my uh, – from my parents growing up was they sacrificed pretty much everything for my brother and I. And so uh, whether it was, you know, just, you know, giving us a life where we could take advantage of opportunity or getting education, sending us to college. um, I really watched my parents kind of sacrifice a lot and had an incredible work ethic to kind of um, make a better life for their family than they had uh, growing up to, during the Depression, so it's kind of an interesting, you know, life lesson to take forward. Looking at them, especially as uh, I became a parent, kind of um, you know, looking at what they did by example.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure that probably spurred you into in, into what you wanted to to do for for a career, your career aspirations, and what you wanted to to do was kind of derived from your from your parents' um, work ethic there, but what what aspirations did you have as you were attending university?
0: Yeah, it was kind of interesting. So coming out of high school, even though like I was on the debate team and that type of thing, I really had a passion for science. Um, I took uh, human physiology, zoology, biology, all these classes in high school. And so going into college at Indiana University, I really was preparing for a career in medicine. Um, so I, you know, study real hard, but kind of sophomore year hit a brick wall um, called organic chemistry, which <laughs> when I talked to people okay. who were also ex pre-med, uh, they kind of share the same story is that they realized when that's, taking organic chemistry, awesome. if you didn't love right. it, yeah, you're, you're not going to be a doctor. So <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, So I, I really at that point kind of sat back and examined what, you know, my my other passions and really found Um, political science and business were kind of the things that I was most attracted to. And then of course, from there, I kind of gravitated towards law, but um, it was an interesting path. And what I learned at that point was um, you have to be passionate about what you're pursuing, but um, be the best at what you're passionate about was kind of the lesson I took from, from college. Did you want to get, I mean, I
1: know you ended up working and we'll talk about this in a second for the state of Indiana, but did, did you want to become a Senator or a Congressman or any, anything, anything like that? I mean, from, from a, from a political science to, to your law degree, was there any aspirations that way?
0: Yeah, it was kind of interesting. I'd call it kind of a hybrid experience because I really went to law school to be a practicing attorney but in college, I had the opportunity to intern in the U.S. Senate, and so I spent a summer living, working for the senators from Michigan, and had a fantastic experience. Kind of involved in, um, you know, watching legislation make its way through the process, and kind of being involved directly in constituent service, and kind of a little bit of got the bug for government. Still maintaining kind of that focus on being a practicing lawyer, but then. Fast forward, I had an opportunity later to work in Indiana state government, um, and at that point, you know, four years in state government kind of cured me of wanting to be a politician because <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was it was not exactly too much red um, tape. Yeah, there was a lot of red tape, and there was a lot of kind of living your life under a microscope. Yeah, um, I I'd always remember kind of when I was t- deputy chief of staff to the governor and this was pre-internet, you know, every morning I would hear the newspaper hit my front porch at about 5.30 in the morning. And I would, so I'd hear it, I'd run downstairs (laughs) and read the paper to find out how the media skewered us uh, from what uh, the administration did the day before. (laughs) But so that kind of microscope, I got tired of that after four years. I recognized probably government being a politician running for office wasn't something that I wanted to pursue.
1: Well, your first job out of college, you're an attorney, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I was a practicing attorney. Um, what was interesting about that is um, both in college and in law school, I kind of gravitated towards international law, a trade law, how um, countries interact, how um, businesses interact from a trade perspective. So I spent as a, as a, Uh, attorney right out of the box. I spent time on helping clients with international trade issues, helping businesses explore business opportunities overseas. And so I spent, you know, almost five years doing that. Had a lot of fun doing that. Uh, And and certainly a lot of the things I did as a practicing attorney, I carried forward into sports. It became a skill set that I definitely put to good use uh, working on the business side of sports.
1: Yeah, which which is interesting because you, you didn't you didn't play too much too many sports growing up. You know, a lot of the guests that I have on here that are in sports sponsorships and and things that they they played a lot of it. Did you still have a love of sports even though you may not have played it as much? Where where did that start for you?
0: Yeah, that was really interesting. Um, so I like sports a lot. I I love watching certain sports, but I'd say more than anything else, I have an appreciation of sports um and, and and part of that was, as I mentioned before i I didn't have the opportunity to play it growing up and I'll just add as a side note that i I have two sons, they're both in their early twenties now, who, because I had no opportunity, I overcompensated and <laughs> <You> so, <laughs> my boys played everything they played basketball, they played tackle football, uh they were gymnastics, martial arts my youngest uh, p- played 10 years in soccer uh was an excellent uh, keeper before he went off to college and and my eldest played baseball for 10 years uh was uh, made it all the way to the state championship finals uh in high school and so <laughs> i i certainly made up for not being a, a sportsman kind of growing up but I, the, my appreciation for sports is what it represents and how it makes people feel yeah And so represent as terms of what it represents, it represents being your best preparation um, aspiration that you can do or accomplish anything. We see that in sports every day. Mm -hmm. Um, The, the underdog story coming from behind all these things um, that sports represents are so appealing to me. And then in terms of how it makes people feel, it's, it's escapism and for fans, it's a time to unplug and forget about things like, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic um, and, and really focus on kind of, you know, something other than, you know, the day-to-day, you know, um, issues in their life. And it makes them feel ennobled. It makes them feel passionate about things. Uh, they get to root for something. Uh, we come together as a community to root for teams. I love all of those things about sports. So even though I didn't have the opportunity to directly participate in sports growing up, uh, it was something that I, I, I felt was so attractive. And so that's why I've kind of spent a good chunk of my career being attached to it.
1: Yeah, that's super, that's super interesting. Um, So, so you, you were an attorney for, you know, four or five years before you ended up becoming the deputy chief of staff you know for the governor of the state of indiana and how, how do you make the connections to to get that that position
0: yeah what was interesting is you know when i got a little bit of that government bug in college it was kind of something that remained you know in the back of my mind in law school and uh, after law school i had the opportunity i was choosing between practicing in new york city and 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 coming back to indianapolis And in the end, I chose to come back to Indianapolis. And one of the things that I really appreciated when I came back was that as opposed to New York, which has really rigid political structures, both Republican and Democrat, um, Indiana was wide open. Um, The the culture here, both the political culture and the social culture is very welcoming and very inclusive. And so um, when I came back as a you know, first-year attorney, you know, young kid, 25 years. There was all kinds of opportunity to get directly involved in politics, both in the grassroots level, you know, knocking on doors, um, working call centers, and then ultimately volunteering for campaigns and kind of putting that um, legal training to use and creating policy papers for local campaigns. I remember one of the first campaigns I worked was uh, for the local county prosecutor in Indianapolis. And you know, as part of their, their policy committee, and you know, drafting um, policy papers for the campaign, and so through that, I met a lot of people. You know, just you know, after work every night, you're working on campaigns, you're volunteering, and several of the attorneys that uh, worked in my law firm is a real, large law firm. There are almost 200 attorneys in the firm, and so and we're also involved in politics. Well, one of them went on to become the chief of staff to the governor of Indiana. And so fast forward several years, um, there was the opportunity, he was hiring for the governor's staff for it was called a government operations position to kind of be involved in the business side of government. So he offered me the job and I jumped at the chance. And so uh, there I go from from being a lawyer, heading on the partnership track of a law firm, I. You know, firmly got off that track and went across the street to the state capitol in my little you know six by six office with my tiny little government desk. I uh, uh-huh. spent the next the next four years serving the people of the state of Indiana, which was uh, I have to say, even though a difficult experience, a fantastic experience. I'm when sure I it was like, pretty rewarding. At the same yeah, thing. you know, you know, instead of get, getting up and helping companies fight fight each other in a you know a courtroom, you know, I'm getting up trying to you know, help our governor kind of make life better for the people and the businesses of Indiana. So that was pretty, pretty fun.
1: That is fun. That's, that's awesome. And, and you, you then go and work for the, um, your next position, you brought you to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that's a, that's an interesting transition, right. From, from, uh, government to now now working in sports essentially.
0: Exactly, and so I get asked all the time, especially you know, by by people, you know, young people in college who are coming out. Maybe they're in a sports management program, and they say, "How did you get your, your first job in sports?" Yeah, everybody's
1: and, like, "Okay, now here's the story. How did you could share that story with us? How did you make that transition?"
0: Yeah, it was a complete accident, <laughs> and what and, and I tell people, and they're disappointed. I said, "I never intended to be in sports." Uh, never really tried to be in sports, and so you know fast forward i 'm in state government for four years. We have a two term limit in Indiana. A governor can only be governor for two four year terms, and my governor was at the end of his second term. so the one thing we knew is on you know January eighth, we were all going to be unemployed, no doubt so you know essentially at that time I started you know it's it 's november it 's december i 'm looking for a job and it, there was a position created at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway called Chief of Staff. And it was to help the um, CEO run the various business enterprises around the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Well, I happened to know that CEO because when I was a practicing attorney, uh, I had a case for that CEO and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, the partner that I worked for at the law firm. Positive case for you? Or- yeah. Well, I, I had a. It was a very positive outcome for them, right? I, I, for, I was fortunate and lucky that uh, that case had a really good outcome for the Speedway, and so that CEO, whose name is Tony George, he remembered me from when I practiced law, and when he looked at my resume, he said, "Oh, you were deputy chief of staff to the governor. I have a job called chief of staff." It sounds like you're perfect for this job. (laughs) And he said, what do you know about auto racing? And I said, absolutely nothing. Yeah, then that's when you're like, well. (laughs) I'd I'd been to three races in my entire life prior to that. And he said, that's fine. He said, I need someone to help me run my business. I'll teach you the racing part. So it was luck. It was right place, right time. Happened to know the person who was hiring but that was my the beginning of my sports, you know, business career, and I couldn't have planned it in a thousand years to turn out the way it did.
1: <laughs> so, what was the difference between working in the government, like working for the governor, versus the speedway?
0: Well, you know, essentially the missions different.
1: It was a, it was a similar similar role, right? But just just exactly. A, so, a little, I mean, it's just different.
0: Yeah, I mean. I'd say that the role was the executive herding the other executive cats. So, Hmm. so it's really just helping the CEO kind of make his strategy a reality. And, and so to a certain extent, it was the same job, right? It was, it was a focus on strategy. There was a lot of planning and execution part of both jobs. Obviously the mission's different. You know, the mission of government is to help people. Um, the mission of a business is to maximize shareholder value and to, you know, to to serve the customers of that business. So the missions were different, the rest was the same. And so through that process, I, you know, kind of dove in headfirst into the business of sports. And really kind of, I was lucky, the position I was in was every aspect of the business of sports. So I ended up in that chief of staff role, I was the chief human resources officer of a company of 500 people with 2000 seasonal employees. Um, I was the chief strategy officer. I was responsible for the strategic plan of all the different um, divisions of the company, as well as kind of the parent company. I was involved in sponsorship and we could talk about that in a bit, but like Mm -hmm. literally from my first event on the job, um, I was involved in sponsorship. Even though I was in a non-sponsorship, I was in a business role. I wasn't in a sales or a sponsorship job uh, position, but I was involved in that. I was involved in broadcast. I was involved in public relations. I kind of really got got a piece of every aspect of sports business right off the bat, including once another executive walked in my office and said, what do you know about building a racetrack? And I said, <laughs> absolutely nothing. He said, good, you're going to learn, and threw a file on my desk. Um, At the time, the company was working with NASCAR and International Speedway Corporation to build a racetrack in the Chicago metro area. And so, for the next four years, I spent kind of time being a project leader for what became the Chicagoland Speedway. So, now that that project was, was absolutely everything in sports business. Plus, real estate development construction management all these different things so i was kind of super super lucky right at the beginning of my sports business career to be exposed to just about everything that you could do in sports business it was phenomenal and you mentioned your your
1: sponsorship this is the first time you had you know a taste of sponsorships what what did you learn was it foreign to you
0: at first yeah it was interesting you know obviously you know, people, I I was like everyone else, the exposure to a sponsorship is essentially signage. And essentially, you know, if you're at a game, if you're at a baseball game or hockey game.
1: And we all know it's way more than that, right?
0: Right, exactly. But, (laughs) But essentially, you know, such and such company, you know, Mountain America Credit Union is the sponsor of, you know, fill in the blank. And, and so I had a very superficial exposure to sponsorship at that point. Uh, but, oh, boy, did I learn kind of <laughs> that it was way more than that. So, um, But it was literally my first weekend on the job.
1: After, how long were you there? Five years? Motor Speedway?
0: Yeah. So the, so the Motor Speedway and what was the Indy Racing League, now IndyCar, both owned by the same family. So it was essentially unified management. So – even though I was on the Speedway staff, technically, okay. um, for five years, I was involved in IndyCar things that entire time. And then when I w- went over and was on the IndyCar staff, I still remained, you know, active in in things that were happening at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But, um, and what was it, that
1: transition from from uh, the the chief of staff to senior vice president of the Indy Racing League?
0: Yeah, you know, I got a. I got a crash course in the difference between, you know, property and or promoter and series race series Mm -hmm. or, or sports league. Um, And so, you know, I started off my career looking at things from the hat of a promoter, you know, as a venue operator, as all of those things, and then flip, you know, I'm then the circus, right. I'm responsible for bringing the circus to town. I'm the, You know, the race series, you know, sanctioning operations, all those different things that a race series has to do. So I got to see sports from both angles, which I think was very valuable. And especially like it's something that I do every day in sponsorship now is I got to see the world from someone who's selling sponsorship or someone who's buying sponsorship Mm -hmm. and from a race series, which, you know, goes to different venues around the country versus you know a fixed you know race stadium you know in one location and all the things that are incumbent upon that so it was interesting i got to see both of those within the same organization right because um we owned one venue but we also owned a race series
1: and you you actually negotiated the broadcast rights with abc and espn is that right
0: yeah, so when I when I went to the IndyCar side of the house, first thing that landed on my desk was the renewal of the um, broadcast relationship with ABC, and ESPN. I mean, you're
1: getting. I mean, you're just getting thrown into the into the into the wolves here, right? I mean, your first experience in sports, you're building raceways, you're now negotiating deals with the behemoths of ESPN, and <laughs> what
0: yeah, a great, it, what
1: a great opportunity! So yeah, awesome.
0: It was. It was either out of the frying pan into the fire, or
1: <laughs> yeah. And you're learning. You're learning literally every aspect of the business.
0: Yeah, I have to say, and I, I don't necessarily recommend this, but the law school and and my five years being a practicing attorney, I kept rel- I kept falling back on that as kind of a base skill set. Um, and then what I found is whether it was you know building a speedway or negotiating a broadcast agreement you surround yourself with experts who know about the subject matter. Yeah. So and and learn from them, right? You find the smartest people you can, you surround yourself with them and you learn from them. So that's that's literally what happened. You know, when I have this broadcast agreement, I didn't come from a television background. I didn't have a broadcast background. It was also, you know, this is like 2001, 2002. It is the dawn of the Internet. Right. I mean, no one even knew the word Web before like 1996, 1997 type of thing. And here I am in a in a in a broadcast relationship with ABC. I'm, I'm arguing over who has rights to a to a website, who has re, who has rights to the data, to the timing and scoring data of a race underlying each each um, race. And so it was a great opportunity to kind of learn. Um, but also the stakes are really high. I mean, the television relationship is is kind of a bedrock of a race series. Get it wrong and the race series could be in jeopardy. So there's a lot of pressure at at the time to get it right. Um, So, you know, again, surrounding yourself with experts, relying on people around you um, that can help you be successful was one of those key takeaways that I had from that. But I have to say I learned-
1: Who would you pull in with you on those negotiations? for let's just give that one for example. ABC. So for
0: example, yeah, so for example, we had an um, in-house uh, broadcast production company that uh, was responsible for for literally the the technical aspect of pulling a broadcast together. So the president of that unit uh, was somebody who was a TV, you know, call, called him a TV guy. He was somebody with deep um, experience in the television industry. Um, operations side and someone who I really relied on in terms of you know the th- the things the pitfalls to to potential agreements or you know something to to give me an insight as to what you know ABCPN would find important and also to 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 give insights as to what they were capable of so we would know what to ask for in return and, and as part of that negotiating process so kind of that that the president of the broadcast unit was somebody who I really leaned on to help uh you know pull together a team of experts uh to create a successful agreement, so that's kind of one example of that
1: that's awesome and and you were in charge of all the sponsorships for the racing league as well. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so it was all the sponsorships and had, and
1: what what kind of what kind of successes did you have there? I mean you've got you kind of dipped your toe when you're doing the speedway area yeah. there with the with with the with the actual facility there but then now you're now you're you're talking with a lot of different brands I'm assuming.
0: Yeah it's uh it was wide open right it was it was a, a national sports league that was looking for sponsorship in every category and um I had a really I had a really good team. I had a vice president of sales who was the day to day but we you know we put together a nice combination of sponsorships, and I really valued kind of that learning relationship. We had, um, we we brought Honda, Chevy, and Toyota into the fold to be engine suppliers, and all of those had sponsorship agreements attached to them. Um, we a pretty groundbreaking relationship with the ethanol industry, and that uh, at the time, uh, an IndyCar engine was run on methanol. And so we, we converted to a renewable um, a renewable energy source, uh, a source of energy that's uh, made in the U.S. and uh, created a, a twenty five million dollar uh, five year agreement with the ethanol industry to provide um, the fuel for the series, to provide pro- promotion for the series, to sponsor a team, to sponsor a driver. Um, and then created kind of a national promotional campaign going around, you know, tout, touting the value of ethanol as an en- energy source. And we're really proud of that. Um, Bombardier Aerospace, um, they, uh, they were uh, sponsors uh, during my tenure and had a great relationship with Speedway and the uh, IndyCar series. Their, they, their primary products are um, uh, Learjet. Uh, the Challenger Jet and the Global Express. So they're in the commercial aviation, the private aviation side. Um, I love the Bombardier relationship because, and I still tell that story because those guys had a 32 to one return on investment. For every million dollars they spent with us uh, on the racing side, they, they made 32 million. Um, so their ROI was spectacular and um, then you know I stayed involved in the Chicago and Speedway. I was on the board of directors while I was at IndyCar, and of course we had to pull together a full a full plate of sponsors for that facility. Uh, I bet, yeah, everything from AT and T to you know all the all the different sponsors that a sports facility would need in the Chicago metro area. So. Uh, I have to say at the time sponsorship was at least a third of what I would do every day. sometimes it was a half <laughs> of what of what I would do, but because it uh, takes a lot of time right oh it's super time intensive super time intensive in but each, I have to, in each
1: each relationship that you have with each brand is so unique too because there's different goals and objectives that they 've got
0: yeah it's it's learning why the sponsor is involved. That relationship again, like you just said, every company, every organization is different, and you have to cater, you know, the program to what they need. Because I learned early on. That's so. It's during this time that I learned it is much easier to keep a sponsor than to find a new one. (laughs) Oh yeah. and so uh that's uh that's where i learned that lesson so and you do that by uh, not only providing great service but by being really attuned to what they need and then satisfying that
1: when we come back ken steps away from his time managing the business of indy racing and creates his own sponsorship agency we'll talk about why he started the agency how to pull results out of sponsorships and the importance of strategy stay with us this is jason smith And you're listening to The Sponsor Pod.
0: Support for The Sponsor Pod and the following message come from Sponsor CX. If you're looking for an innovative, intuitive, and simple way to manage your sponsorships, look no further than this sponsorship management software. Sign up for a demo today and find out how easy it is to manage your sponsors. Learn more at www.sponsorcx.com.
1: Hey, welcome back to The Sponsor Pod. I'm Jason Smith. Ken just stepped away from his time managing the business of Indy Racing. The long hours of being away were starting to take a toll, and he wanted to build something he could call his own. You decided to step away. Was that hard?
0: Yeah, you know, at that point, I was about 10 years in racing. Um, I was on the road constantly. Uh, it was I was either going to a race, or I was going to a city to sell a sponsorship, or I, w- I was really kind of um, not home, and I wasn't present. And at the time, my uh, my two boys were basically, you know, four, five, six years old, and I was missing that. So it was time to step back from sports. And at the same time, I wanted to create something, um, I wanted to build something um, that I would have my hand in. And so instead of building something for organization, I wanted to to be the author of what I created. And so that's when I stepped back from racing and I started the agency that became Charge.
1: I mean, you, you, you have the benefit to consult and work, you know, on both with properties and brands um, as it relates to sponsorships. Um, how does your approach differ with, with each one of them as you, as you consult with them? I mean, you spend a lot of time on the property side there, but, uh, but you also consult with with brands specifically. so maybe maybe talk about about how you work with with both of them.
0: yeah, I that's the part I really appreciate. Sometimes it's a difficult thing to balance being on both sides. You know, I'm never on both sides at the same time. <laughs> sure. So I never represent both at the same time, but it's really it's the different side of the same coin and so because essentially the relationship is the same um the side you're on it um you know kind of dictates different goals and kind of you know different objectives that you're trying to reach but i think what it does uh, the fact that we we work on both the brand and the property side gives us an appreciation because the essence of any relationship is creating a win-win at least you know the long-term relationships Mm -hmm. in sponsorship are about win-wins so if if you're representing a brand but you understand what the property needs because you know yesterday you were on the property side it is so much easier to kind of to get to that win-win because you you not only understand what that other side needs you've done it and so what we do is you know we're, we're, we're sitting there understanding what people on the other side of the table need and want and then you find a way by serving the interests of your client um, to get there. So yeah,
1: because it's a certain language, you're speaking with each other too. So it's it's you know I get that a lot you know with uh, with Mountain America. you know when I'll, when I'll negotiate with, with a property, they appreciate that I've been on the on the property side because I'm speaking the same language as them. And if, if the property has to negotiate with somebody who maybe hasn't been, on the property side, it's it's almost an education process for them a little bit.
0: Exactly, Jason. I think that that is a key kind of part of it, and and I think once once the other side knows that you know what they know, um, all the facades fall away, and kind of the baloney part of negotiating falls yeah. away, and it breaks it, down a lot of barriers that you have do- to go through. It does. It does, and. You know, if the other side is asking for something unreasonable, the fact that you know it and they know you know it um, makes short work of that. <laughs> yeah,
1: it eliminates it almost completely, actually.
0: <laughs> exactly, right? Exactly. So uh, you've been there too. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's awesome. Um, how how do you when you when you consult? How how do you uh, teach them these these different properties or brands? About how to pull results out of their sponsorships, and how do you teach them this?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and kind of the principal takeaway that I that I hope to leave, you know, with with, with clients is that it's a three step process, right? It's strategy, it's planning, and it's execution. And don't flip the order, right? So, mm-hmm. and and so we we teach that every sponsorship has to start with a strategy. Why, why the sponsorship? And you have to answer that question. What goals does it um, hope to provide to your business? If you're on the brand side, you know how will it make your marketing better? How it will help you achieve your business goals? That strategy. When it's flipped, you know. For example, we see you know a CEO might um, be attracted to a golf sponsorship because he or she plays golf right we call i call that a hobby sponsorship Yep, mm-hmm. and and that's so that's a good term i like that i'll have to use that yeah, feel huh? free it, it, it's not copyrighted <laughs> 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 but but um you know so in those circumstances they didn't start with strategy right they started with you know more or less with execution right uh, i i like golf so i want to be in a suite you know hospitality suite you know during the final round of the golf tournament And so, if you invert it, um, you're going to probably end up with really poor results. What I hate is when that happens, people blame the sponsorship. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's not the sponsorship. It's the people driving the sponsorship. Yes. And so, strategy, planning, execution in that order. And so, if we teach that to clients who, who, who may not know, and we find a lot of clients know that already. Uh, but what we bring is kind of the discipline around that to kind of say, wait, let's do it in this order so that we can, you know, no matter what you spend, we can, um, not guarantee, but promote the fact that you'll have a good ROI out of it. Well, not only that, I mean, it's
1: just like anything you put strategy behind something and it becomes effective, right? Right. Right. Um, you take something simple like tickets to an event, let's just say the motor speedway, Right. Those tickets can just be handed to somebody or given to a friend, but they or they could be utilized to drive uh, social media exposure. They could be used for business development um, to, to increase the ROI. So even just something simple and tangible as tickets in a sponsorship can even drive revenue through strategy.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And when you can, as, as you just said, if you could, do that dotted line or straight line between those tickets and a result, um, then you know your strategy planning and execution was effective. Um, I'll often ask the question, What did you do with those tickets? And if the answer is, Well, they sat in the drawer, or um, we didn't really get a lot of use out of them, or whatever, then either um, there was not so good strategy up front, or there wasn't follow through on the back end. So, every aspect of the sponsorship from the rights, you know, from the intellectual property rights you get to the tickets uh, have to work to create return on investment.
1: Absolutely. And so now that we're talking about assets of, of a sponsorship, what do you feel is the most important element asset of a sponsorship? And I realize that might change depending on what the needs are and the strategy for, for a brand, but what, what have you seen as, as kind of that most important element?
0: Yeah. You know, I like to talk about that. Uh, and I really appreciate that question because sometimes you know people jump right to the sport or jump right to the type of sponsorship without looking at sponsorship as kind of you know what it what is this marketing platform? And I like to call it as sponsorship is like life. It is a it is a partnership first, and if we use the metaphor of it's like life, it's like any relationship that you have, whether it's a relationship with a friend or a relationship with a spouse it there's give and take there's yeah. there's partnership there's creativity there's trust there's awesome authenticity but all those things go into that back and forth between brand and property and the more you put just like a relationship in life the more you put in like when you, more you get out it, of it the more you get out exactly
1: yeah
0: um you know, it's, you know, writing card, you know, birthday cards to friends or picking up the phone and calling them to check in and investing time in their life and all of those things. That is the most important element in sponsorship. How do you feel like community involvement plays into sponsorships? I think it's really important. Um, I think it's important in a number of different ways. So you know, kind of, let's look at two buckets of community involvement. One I call like cause marketing, um, purpose-driven sponsorship, corporate social responsibility, that's kind of bucket number one, where you invest the sponsorship in creating some positive outcome for the community that is probably separate and distinct from an event or from the sponsorship kind of purpose in general, but it creates some benefit for the community. So that's kind of the first bucket. The second is kind of involving a community in an event, whether or not they attend a sponsored event. And I tend to call that off-site resonance so that the sponsorship resonates beyond the four walls of a sponsored event because the entire community can be involved whether or not they attend a sponsored event. And I think it's incumbent upon the people managing the sponsorship, both on the property side and the sponsor side, to make that happen.
1: That's awesome. Um, I, I think community involvement is super important because it really helps drive the reasoning and the mission behind what these brands stand for. And instead of having your name just flash up and lights and signage and you name, name it, if there's a piece to really tie in, I mean, you talked about um, going to a more fuel efficient you know, more fuel efficient, uh, fuel. Like there's a whole story around that, that you can tell rather than just throwing logos up. There's a story that can be told about, about why you do this in the community and why, what is your mission? And I feel like sponsorship is a platform to really do that. It really can, can resonate with those that are active in whatever sport or whatever, Event or whatever art venue that you're in and that you want to actually share that that community involvement with, I just think it's a big a big piece of it.
0: Yeah, Jason, I I think that that is exactly right, and and I think you know when I look at that aspect of sponsorship, that's a key differentiator. With all due respect to my friends and ad agencies, you know sponsorship is most often compared to advertisement, and sometimes they're even confused but even a great ad is not going to involve the community. <laughs> yeah. It 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 can be super persuasive. It could drive action, but only a sponsorship can in, involve a community in the way that you just described. And I think that's a key differentiator from advertisement.
1: So you, over these last, you know, 14 years you've you've been able to to uh, consult with various partners um, can you talk about any of these projects, any, any projects that you feel like have been just, just good, good examples of sponsorship that you've been able to, to, uh, to see in action?
0: Yeah, there are a couple of clients come to mind. So, um, American Honda is a client that we've worked with for many years and we've just been really fortunate to help them with three key events, um, from a sponsorship perspective, um, the, the, the Acura brand recently sponsored the the uh Grand Prix of Long Beach which is a storied street race it's uh, many decades uh it's it's been you know one of the most popular events i think it's the largest attended event in southern california and so we've been really uh fortunate to help Acura uh re- really kind of you know take a a very consumer forward um stance around that event being the new title sponsor of it Uh, we've also helped honda with the honda indy grand prix of alabama and the honda indy 200 at mid ohio both of those events are important events on the indycar calendar but they're also places where honda has manufacturing facilities in the u.s so we get to involve um, you know the tens of thousands of honda associates who also, who work in that area, who build cars in that area uh, for the North American market and kind of integrating, you know, not only consumers into those events, but but associates and the pride that they take in building great Acura and Honda vehicles uh, in the U.S. And then um, the uh, St. Vincent Sports Performance brand, St. Vincent Sports Performance is a you know, internationally known provider of sports performance and sports medical services. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had been very active around the Olympic movement. So they have been the uh, official sponsor, for example, of uh, USA Track and Field. And so both at the uh, London Olympic Games and the Olympic Games in Rio, um, St. Vincent kind of activated its uh, sponsorship around those events. Those were particularly fun. Because uh, what we were doing, you know, obviously um, they are sponsors of the National Governing Body. They're not a sponsor of, the U- of Team USA or the International Olympic Committee. The fun of that is helping them punch way above their weight. Um, and so, for example, uh, around the Rio uh, Games, uh, I'll, I'll never forget from a sponsorship perspective, one night uh, during the um, uh, swimming, uh, swimming finals. The entire USA swimming team, Michael Phelps and his colleagues, when they were in the pool they had these strange round bruises on their on their chest. Yeah and there was there was a question like how, what were they? How did they get those? And the answer was well, they, they got them from cupping. So there's this ancient Chinese medical art called cupping. Um, the, the process uh, would be to remove toxins uh, from the body. Through applying a, a a vacuum sealed cup uh, ch- to the chest area, well, um, all of the staff of Saint Vincent Sports Performance who were on who were on site to support USA Track and Field, they not only knew what cupping was from a medical perspective, they actually practiced it and have helped athletes with it. And I'll never forget the the night that uh, we arranged for a live um, a, a live shot on CNN uh, with the executive director of, of Saint Vincent Ralph Reef. To discuss uh, what Saint Vincent does, what Cupping does, and how it uh, promotes what athletes do- does, and so um, we took the help take the Saint Vincent brand and give it international exposure on CNN during the Olympic Games through the power of sponsors- awesome. through the power of sponsorship. Right again, they would not be there but for sponsorship. So uh, I love that story because of, of what sponsorship can do for organizations.
1: Yeah, that's fun. That's awesome. And uh, you you wrote a book. Well, you've written a few books. I'll let you talk a little bit about that. But their most recent book is Sponsorship Strategy, Practical Approaches to Powerful Sponsorship. Um, kind of at the core, what, what's this book about and why do you decide to write a book?
0: Yeah, it was interesting. Um, so around Labor Day of last year, so, um, you know, September of 2019, I decided that I really wanted to write something that was a more or less a manifesto for what we do with the agency. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned before, kind of the first aspect of a sponsorship, we believe a strategy. And I love the quote from uh, Robert Waterman, who's kind of a renowned management expert. Waterman said um, a strategy is necessary because the future is unpredictable. And, and so I wanted to kind of create a manifesto of what strategy means so that whether you're on the brand side or the property side, uh, we can all speak as an industry with the same vocabulary and with the same understanding of the importance of sponsorship strategy. So I sat down last year in 2019 and wrote a book and uh, finished it um, during the pandemic and published it in July of 2020. Uh, but it was re- it's really about how everyone can make sponsorship better. Because I think as an industry, if sponsorship works better, it, it, it benefits all of us.
1: And where can, where can listeners go to buy the book?
0: So the book is available on Amazon and uh, both in paperback and in Kindle and Apple Books uh, on ebook, but uh, you can get it by going to chargesponsorship.com.
1: Well, yeah, I'd encourage, I'd encourage everyone to go, go check that out and, and, um, and read his book. Yeah, that'll be, that'll be great. And um, what do you feel like the future looks like for Charge?
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, When I look at the current state of the economy, you know, obviously, and you know this, Jason, uh, the sponsorship industry has been hit super hard. I mean, there've been a lot of industries hit hard and there are, you know, tens of millions of people unemployed, which is horrible. But with no sports or very little sports and and very few events most are canceled or postponed sponsorships taken a real beating and so sponsorship agencies like ours have to do whatever we can do to make it to the other side because really that was the big lesson from the you know 2008 2009 recession was you just have to make it to the other side um and so i believe that you can't change things by fighting the existing reality right we can't we we can't fight what's going on in the economy and we can't fight the pandemic but i do believe that to change something you got to build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete now that isn't something i created that's a that's actually a quote from buckminster fuller but i believe it as a philosophy and so at charge we're really focused on what is the new model for sponsorship because the entire industry will change, right? Everything that you knew in February of 2020 is wrong now yeah. and, and will no longer exist, you know, in February of 2021. So as an industry out of this chaos, I believe there's opportunity. So at charge, we're really focused on, you know, either, you know, finding that opportunity or creating that opportunity from whole cloth, you know, on behalf of clients. And so the future is doing those things on behalf of clients and showing them the way, I mean, being that source of light where there isn't much light to be found these days.
1: Yeah. There's going to have to be a lot of adaptation for sure. For for sure. Yep. And uh, what makes you get up in the morning and do what you do?
0: Yeah. You know, that's interesting. Um, I, I think it's the, it's a core philosophy That I think each day is a new creation and we really owe it to ourselves, our families um, to really get up and treat each day um, as a special day, as a day to create and take nothing for granted. And so that's what that's what causes me to get up in the morning is to, to engage in that act of creation.
1: That's great. And if you were listening to this podcast, you know, 20, 25 years ago, what do you wish you knew then that you know that you know now? It's a <laughs> it's loaded the, question.
0: It's the Jason Smith time machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, it, and I'd go further. I'm, an, I'm, I'm a pretty old guy, so I'll go further back. I'll go thirty years. Should we go thirty years with you? <laughs> let's do, let's do thirty years. The thirty year, the thirty year uh, podcast is. There is no one path to a career. I, I used to believe that there was a lockstep path to a career and your job was to be on that one path. Um, what I found is there is no one path. You have to make your own.
1: Yeah. And
0: so if, if I were listening to this podcast, I would tell all your listeners, especially those who are early in their career, thinking about a career in sponsorship, um, there is no one path in this industry. Be bold, be passionate, be the best at what you're passionate about and make your own path.
1: I would say the majority of the, the, uh, people I have on, on, uh, the podcast started not focused on sponsorship, but they end up, but they end up there. It's uh, and, it's in, yeah. it's interesting. There's, there's, there's a lot of different career paths people take. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they messed up their career and ended up in sponsorship. Yeah, it's like where can, I, where can I fall back to? Oh, sponsorship is easy. Let's do that. Not uh, that's great. I love uh. that.
1: Well, Ken, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Ken Unger, President and Founder of Charge. Thanks, Ken. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Sponsor Pod. Today's podcast was brought to you by Sponsor CX. If you're looking for an innovative, intuitive, and simple way to manage your sponsorships, look no further than this sponsorship management software. Sign up for a demo today and find out how easy it is to manage your sponsors. Learn more at www.sponsorcx.com. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of The Sponsor Pod. Before you go, I want to remind you to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends through email, social media, or even by word of mouth. We appreciate all the support. Until next time, I'm Jason Smith, and you've been listening to The Sponsor Pod.